welcome to the 37th episode of the Liam McCollum Show. I've got Scott Horton with me for my first episode of 2021 to talk about his newest book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terror. We talked about how the government led us into war, how they let Osama escape, and why the war on terror is a sham. We also talk a little bit about Biden's administration escalating wars with only 10 days in office, how he has yet to pull out of Yemen, the worst humanitarian crisis right now, and the great Russian arms treaty he got us back into. I do show some images from the Yemeni crisis, so if you prefer the video format, check out the interview on YouTube. Remember to like, share, and subscribe too. I'm on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Stitcher. Also, I want to say this is actually take two of an interview we did last week, but both of our files were corrupted for some reason. I had like an hour and 40 minutes of Scott ranting, and I couldn't not share that with you guys, so I brought him back, but we condensed it a little bit. Here it is. All right, Scott. Well, thank you for coming on again. It's always a pleasure to have you. Great to talk to you again. How are you? Good. Um, I wanted to bring you on to talk about your new book, Enough Already. Have it right here. Um, just before we start, or as as we get going, do you want to just explain why you um, chose to write this book as opposed to like another Fool's Errand, which is just focused on one more? Sure. Well, actually, Fool's Errand started out as this book. And so chapter one was getting into this mess, and then chapter two is Afghanistan. And I just got bogged down in the Afghan quagmire, as has happened to so many before me, and it turned into a whole book. And so that that's the real question. Why would you write a book about Afghanistan? Because chapter two got out of control. That's why. Um, So then this is the book that I was supposed to have written in the first place. And there's kind of a cool story behind it, which is that Thaddeus Russell brought me on to Renegade University. Although, sorry, Thad, because I've not done my part there for what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm... uh, kind of spread too thin but one of the things i did there was a presentation on the war in afghanistan once the book was done then i came and did another one on the war on terrorism a month later so this was in february of 2018 and what happened was i took the outline of the book that i was going to write in the first place of just the notes i jotted down about what i want to cover and the wars in order and all that and then um it's tom wood's old producer, assistant guy who now works with that, A.J. Van, Von Slyke. I think it's Von, not Van. Sorry, A.J., if I said it wrong. I think it's uh, A.J. Von Slyke, and he's brilliant. So he took my just completely crummy outline and turned it into this beautiful PowerPoint presentation with all these great pictures, you know, and everything. And then I did this as a presentation for Thaddeus Russell's Renegade University, which, hey, Liam, you know me, kid. It took five and a half hours to get through it all and, you know, a few cans of Dr. Pepper, but we got it done. Right. So then this wonderful woman, uh, Joanne from Australia, she, believe it or not, sat and went through and transcribed the entire five and a half hour presentation. And then so this book is the extremely edited and added to transcript of a talk I gave based on the outline that I had written for the book in the first place. So it worked out. And the reason it took so long though, was because once I started working on it, I got carried away. And especially on Iraq war two, it started turning into another fool's errand about Iraq war two. But the problem is so many books have been written about Iraq war two that have all this, you know, great detail in them. But I have a more narrow story to tell about that war rather than just getting into all the different aspects and everything. So, um, 
and I and I know that you know if if I had just continued on the way I was then then I had to you know basically equal that level of detail with the rest of the wars that the whole thing would have been 600 pages and it would take me six years and no one would ever read it so I decided <laughs> last summer to throw the whole thing out and start over again I mean with her transcript and then I just went from there and, and tried to hammer it out as fast as I could and so there's no footnotes unlike fool's errand which some people really got bogged down in the sort of PhD thesis kind of nature of the writing in Fool's Errand, which I don't know if that would have ever got me a degree or not, but it was, it's certainly full of footnotes and, and extreme levels of detail in a way that some people found too difficult. Well, this one is supposed to be much easier, you know, a, a much more kind of brief and, and readable take, not just for you and the people in the libertarian movement and the anti-war movement, but hopefully for your people too to be able like, hey, Uncle Bob, you know what? This is that guy I was telling you about. Just check this out. Now, I wanted it, Liam. I really wanted it to be just 150 pages so mm -hmm. that you could say, Uncle Bob, look, it's just 150 pages. Now, yeah, sorry, you're going to have to tell him. It is three. But he'll love it, though. He'll love it. And, um, and uh, you know, because I'm a libertarian, that means I'm absolutely not partisan. And so even if you like some presidents and dislike others, you got to recognize that I treat them fairly. I dislike all of them, but I don't, you know, like personally on a personal level, I hate Bill Clinton and George W. Bush the most, right? Again, I'm not a partisan. Those two are the ones I really hate the most, but in terms of the way I write about them, there's, it's, you know, I, it, they're all equal. There's not, I'm not trying to pull any punches or, or any favor or anything like that. It's just the story of what it was that they did and how each war led to the next and how the whole thing's stupid and never should have been. And so, so far the, the reception is pretty good. People seem to, you know, think that I got away with cramming it all in there, what I was trying to say in 300 pages. So yeah. I guess I'll ask you if you think I got away with it or not. Yeah. Yeah. I love it so far. I haven't made it all the way through, but, um, it's number one in war and peace right now. Right. Yeah. Wow. Since the first that, day. Yeah. That, yeah. That's awesome. I do want to read, um, for people like uncle Bob, I want to read this little part uh, that I highlighted in the book. It says, the problem is, is that our government is ignoring and misrepresenting the real causes of the terrorist war against the United States. So for Uncle Bob, those people out there that read the title, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, and they hear like, well, aren't terrorists bad? Like, what would you say to those people who, you know, might have been indoctrinated or something like sure. that? Yeah, I mean, the, the false premise of the whole war is that they started it. But the truth is, that's not true. It's our government that started it. And so that doesn't mean that they're the good guys and that our country are the bad guys. And it doesn't obviously justify targeted violence against American civilians, which, you know, nobody would argue about whether September 11th is an atrocity or not. That's not the question. The question is just what was the true motive? And George W. Bush was lying and he knew he was lying when he said they hate us because of our goodness. They hate us because we're free. They hate us because of democracy and voting and freedom of religion. Well, that's just crazy. I mean, think about, I mean, on the, on the latter point, which is probably the most important point in all of world history, freedom of religion. In the United States of America, there are roughly three million Muslims who are perfectly free to worship exactly as they wish without interference from anyone. And there have been a total of zero anti-Muslim pogroms in this country ever. 
right? I mean, there have been hate crimes. There's the guy shot up a mosque of Sikhs, right? They're not, that's not even a mosque, a Sikh temple. They're not even Muslim. Um, you know, there have been uh, one-offs, but there's never been an organized, you know, riot against Muslims ever in the land between Canada and Mexico has never happened. And, mm. and in my county, Williamson County, north of Austin, we're a little bit country and a little bit Republican leaning as opposed to Austin, Texas. But you drive right down the street and there's a mosque and a Methodist church and a Baptist church and a Catholic church and a Jewish synagogue all within a mile of each other. And nobody cares. And nobody's enemies. We're all friends and we're all neighbors because we just don't care about that, dude. We what we care about is that you have the right, Liam, to believe whatever you want, son. That's what we believe in America. That's first. Right. And so the idea that the the Muslim extremists like Osama bin Laden, what he really hated about us was our tolerance for Muslims in our midst in this super duper majority Christian society that with, you know, and obviously um, with a Jewish minority that has a lot of influence mm -hmm. in terms of American policy and politics. And we don't persecute Muslims. We don't go after Muslims. But that's why they hate us, because we don't? Come on. Right. At this point, George W. Bush is just jerking your chain. And especially now that it's 20 years later, Uncle Bob ought to be able to fess up. Yeah. You know what? Uncle Bob knows. In fact, I was there. We were at the theater together in the same room and saw Rambo 3 together. And it was about how Ronald Reagan heroically supported the freedom fighters of Afghanistan resisting the Soviet occupation of that country in the 1980s. And Uncle Bob knows that wasn't just the Afghan Mujahideen. That was the Arab Afghans from all across the Middle East that were recruited by the CIA and sent there, you know, with the help of the Saudis and the Pakistanis to wage that war. Everybody knows that. OK, then people just want to act like the 1990s never happened. Next thing you know, our towers come down and we don't deserve an explanation. Well, OK. The explanation is that Ronald Reagan's vice president, H.W. Bush, decided to go to war against Saddam Hussein in 91 and decided to leave American troops, American combat forces, and especially airmen and air bases in Saudi Arabia in order to wage the permanent blockade and no-fly zone campaign against Iraq. And that was what motivated Ronald Reagan's heroic freedom fighters into turning into evil terrorists and targeting the United States instead of America's enemies. That was what it was. And so, of course, George W. Bush couldn't admit that any of this was true because his father was up to his eyeballs in it, right? My father and Ronald Reagan and my father backed these men. And then my father really pissed them off by putting troops next to their most holy territory. Mm -hmm. And then my virtual stepbrother, Bill Clinton, who golfs with Senior all the time and is ever since defeating Senior was essentially adopted as a stepbrother into the Bush family. Hey, they all sold cocaine together in the 1980s anyway, right? So what difference does it make? And so... It's not like George W. Bush could if you held a gun to his head. He couldn't admit that this is all my father and my stepbrother's fault, could he? Right? So instead he said, they hate us because we're innocent. They right. hate us because history began today. And the more we love Jesus and the more we love our mothers and our sisters, the more they want to kill us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. The reality was America, well, and just put the shoe on the other foot. It's easy.
What if the Saudis had military bases in our country, even at the invitation of our governor, say Governor Abbott, invited the Saudis to come and build military bases in San Antonio, and then you next to the Alamo, say, and then use those military bases in order to launch sorties to bomb Mexico for 10 years. What would the Texicans do about that, right? We would shoot them to death if we yep. would do whatever it took to get rid of them. And then I'm sorry I'm redundant for my consumers of my interviews, but it seems like the point to make, right, that you look at how jealous Texans are of the Alamo and San Antonio, how much that means to us and what we would do to keep that out of the hands of any foreign occupying army anytime in the next thousand years. Nobody better ever try it, right? But now think about it like this, Liam. What if Jesus had been born at the Alamo in San Antonio? back 2000 years ago as the very origin and basis of the Christian religion, which is again, believed by the super majority of the population of the United States. How much more important would the Alamo and San Antonio be to the people of this state and this land then? Okay, well, that's what I we're talking about. Montana would go down to Texas. That's right, that's right. And look what happens when somebody attacks our towers in New York who have no sacred meaning at all. They're just full of they're just office buildings full of civilians. If they had any symbolic meaning, it was the power of the Rockefeller family, Nelson and David. But so that's not America's, you know, anything. I mean, a little bit of our pride. It was just the civilian casualties, right? It wasn't a holy site. You know, it's Wall Street down there, you know, the financial district. It's important. But then what do you have? You have American Christians and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims from all 50 states rush to go and join the army to defend their country against foreign attack. Well, come on. That's how it works on the other side, too. It's just as simple as that. It's just as simple as that. And take the story of Mohammed Atta, who was the lead hijacker on September 11th. He and his friends, their primary motive was American support for Israel. And not for Israel just being a nice Jewish boy minding its own business and trying to get along over there, but Israel's crimes against the civilian population of Palestine and of Lebanon. And there's a great book called Perfect Soldiers by Terry McDermott, which is the biography of Mohammed Atta and all of his buddies at the Hamburg cell, Ramzi bin al-Sheib, who helped coordinate the attack, and Marwan al-Shehi and these other guys who served as the pilots. And these were the ringleaders, not Flight 77 that hit the Pentagon. That was the San Diego cell. But these were the guys that flew the other three planes on September 11th, okay? And their motive was Israel in Lebanon. And here's the anecdote. You can find it from 10 sources. It's true, okay? From his own family, tells the story and everything. When Shimon Perez launched Operation Grapes of Wrath against Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, in, two th in uh, 1996, uh, Mohammed Atta filled out his last will and testament, which was essentially him joining the army, right? That was him saying, whatever happens, I'll give my life for this cause to fight as a soldier in this war against these aggressors. That was his point of view on the thing. And then it was just a couple of days after that, that, um, and that's how we know it's true, we even know the day that this happened, that he filled out the will and everything. It was, I think, two days later that the Khan massacre, the first Khan massacre happened in 1996 where the Israelis killed, pretty sure it was 106 or 108 civilians hiding in a United Nations shelter, women and children hiding in a UN shelter. And the Israelis shelled it and, and killed them all. And 
it was uh, just a couple of months later that bin Laden arrived in Afghanistan and issued his declaration of war against the Americans occupying the land of the two holy places. That's what it was called. Pretty subtle, huh? And then, but about one third of it, you know, it's about the basis in Saudi, but then about one third of it is his case against American support for Israel and their war crimes in Lebanon. And he goes on and on about Kana and he is explicit. We will never forget the images of the children's heads and arms severed from their bodies. He says, how come you think that your blood is blood, but our blood is water. That might have been a different interview, but it was in reference to the same atrocity. And he essentially says, we'll show you. So then what happened, Liam, was that Mohammed Atta read bin Laden's rant and said, this is my guy, right? So this is why the Hamburg cell, who were so angry at Israel, this is how and why they joined Al-Qaeda, because they read bin Laden's declaration of war that said that he was angry about the exact same things that they were angry about. Mm. And so that was when they decided we're joining with this guy. In the beginning of 97, they traveled to Afghanistan. They met bin Laden where they were recruited right in. You guys got German passports, you say? All right, we can make something out of this. Consider yourselves recruited. Ever been to flight school? And these are engineering students, right? And you know, by the way, this is a small parenthesis, but I guess it's worth bringing up. A lot of the reason that people became 9-11 truthers after 9-11. It wasn't just because Bush said they hate us for our freedom and that didn't make any sense. It was because Bush said that the Taliban did it and right. that didn't make any sense because people thought, what, a bunch of cavemen pulled off this sophisticated operation in the West like this? The Taliban are more hillbilly than anybody in Appalachia, okay? These guys are from the backwoods. How could they have done it? Well, they didn't, okay? It wasn't the Taliban. It was Al-Qaeda. And our government tried very hard to conflate those things together. They succeeded in fooling your Uncle Bob into not being able to tell the difference between the two. But in fact, bin Laden was the son of a billionaire and had a degree in engineering. His partner, Zawahiri, was one of the most prominent surgeons in Cairo, Egypt, okay? Uh, the guys, again, the, the cell of uh, the Hamburg cell of Al-Qaeda uh, September 11th hijackers, they were engineering students studying in Germany, okay? These were not cavemen, these were sophisticated men. And that was how they were able to pull off that attack. And that was something that, because of our government's various lies about it, they sure built a straw man case that right. a truther can knock down. But the real steel man case for Al-Qaeda did it remains. You know, if you do, if you look for good journalism and don't just ask the government for their own little commission report and that kind of thing, you know, you, you find your own bits and pieces where you can and you'll see who it was that did it. And it was Al-Qaeda that did it. And after all, the government knew that an attack was coming all summer long. You know, they just, you know, minimal Occam's razor case. They just couldn't get their act together to prevent it in time. OK, yeah, people can say that they turn a deliberate blind eye. That's essentially unprovable, right, um, and, and not falsifiable. But I don't think that there's any question that bin Laden and his group were behind the attack. And I think that was part of the reason why people didn't buy that, because they were saying, come on, these guys from the far side of the town of Bedrock came and knocked down two the, the biggest two towers in Manhattan? That doesn't sound right, you know, but that wasn't really right. It was Al-Qaeda that did it, not the Taliban. And that's yeah. a whole other subject, I guess, but go ahead. 
Yeah, and this wasn't their first attack, right? Like they found a laptop right. full of information. So, um, but yeah, I'm curious if the way that you wrote the book changed at all with like um, Biden incoming as president. Actually, no. I mean, I had Biden in there anyway because he was always important. So he helped lie us into war in Iraq in 2002. He played a major role there. You know, in the in the very end there, I, I wrote up little bits about his staff, right? I, I added a bit about Blinken and a bit about Sullivan. See, Sullivan was already in there too, right? Since he played such a horrible role in the war in Libya and in Syria. He was Hillary Clinton's right-hand man. You know, Smithers to her burns the whole time she was Secretary of State. He was the most powerful person who worked for her. And he's now the National Security Advisor. So all these guys come from the Obama team. They were all already in there. The only thing that changed was I wrote up a whole thing about how much I hate Michelle Flournoy, but then she never got the job. So I got to cut that back out again. I mean, she's still in there for helping, um, you know, push the surge in Afghanistan in yeah. the second Afghanistan chapter there. But um, okay. other than that, though, no, I mean, there's I guess there's a bit of follow up that like, well, on, on major questions, what's he going to do about Afghanistan? I think he's probably going to ruin the deal and stay. And that's in there. What's he going to do about the new start treaty with Russia? I think he's probably going to keep it. That's already happened. I already got proved right on that prediction that he's going to keep that. And then on Yemen, that's our best chance for him to end a war. But of course, we're eight days in as of this recording and he hasn't done it yet. Yeah. And he could have. All he has to do is a spoken word. Mr. Chief of Staff, let the Secretary of Defense know that I want him to let the Saudi kings know that the war is over. And that's it. It'd be done in 45 minutes. You know, there's a funny story I just thought of. Um, I should have put this in the book. Maybe I don't know if I had room for it. I guess there's no place for it. But when Israel was bombing Lebanon in, I think, 82 or 83, um, I think it was 82, Ronald Reagan got all upset. And I don't know if he made the call himself. I think he made the call himself. And he called, I'm pretty sure it was Menachem Begin, the prime minister of Israel at the time, and said, listen, this is just unconscionable. I want you to stop. And then like within 10 minutes, it stopped. And Reagan said, wow, I can do that? <laughs> you know, like that worked? Did you guys see that? You know, because the Israelis make it sound like, you know, they got us by the short and curlies all the time. We have to do what they say or else they'll do something even worse and all of this. But when it comes down to it, when President Reagan says, I disapprove of this, they cool it. In fact, this was part of what got H.W. Bush removed was H.W. Bush. I don't have the exact quote. I'd have to look it up. But H.W. Bush had said something along the lines or maybe he had Baker say it. But I think Bush himself said it that like, you know, really wish we had a different prime minister other than Yitzhak Shamir to deal with over there. And the Israelis held new elections. Bush wants rid of Shamir. Shamir's gone. Wow. And then they brought in, I forgot who was next. It, it may have been Rabin next. Um, and uh, But then the lobby targeted Bush and put all of their weight behind Bill Clinton and tried to paint Bush as an anti-Semite and all of this stuff. And I have mm -hmm. to tell you, Liam, I was just in, what, the 10th grade at the time, okay? But I was, and I was not a partisan. But I, I did hate the Republicans more, but I, it's not like I was a fan of Bill Clinton in any way. But I was paying very close attention to that race. And I swear to God, nobody said the word Israel once. Nobody said the Israelis and their partisans in America have decided they're switching from the Republicans back to the Democrats. 
because of what Bush had done to insult their former prime. I mean, that just wasn't discussed yeah. ever. And yet it turns out that that was a huge part of, you know, what played the role. In that. And I don't know if that has anything to do with Ross Perot being in the race. I'm not saying that. I doubt that it does. I think he, you know, that was his own, you know, different thing. But certainly Bill Clinton attacked Bush from the right in the bad way, not in the good creative libertarian way, but in the bad way, attacked Bush from the right on Israel-Palestine and solidified the support of the Israel lobby in the election 92. Because Bush Sr., see, he was riding high after Iraq War One, And so all of his staff, you know, like uh, Colin Powell and the chairman's joint chiefs of staff and his secretary of state, James Baker, they were like, now's our chance to force the Israelis out of the West Bank and force them to give up the West Bank and Gaza for a Palestinian state. And then, but the Israelis, they want that land. They'll never, they'll talk about a Palestinian state, but they'll never give up the West Bank and the Gaza. Uh, maybe Gaza, but they don't care as much about that. But they're stealing that West Bank no matter what. And so the fact that Bush Sr. got all brave and thought that he was going to force the issue meant that, no, he had to be stopped. And then he was. And which yeah. I was happy to see him go. But I didn't know that it was because of all this collusion with a foreign power going on at the time, you know, that kind of would have changed my perspective on it a bit. You know? Yeah. But anyway, I mean, he deserved to be overthrown for his launching Iraq War One, And for that matter, the invasion of Panama, he should have been removed from office over in his invasion of Panama in the first place. Should have never had the chance to do Iraq War One. But anyway. To kind of talk about like the future of Biden as you got into um Last time we talked, we we talked a little bit about like the prospect of maybe a war of domestic terrorism here. Do you what's the likelihood of that? Like, are you seeing yeah. it? You know, I don't know, man. I and mean, the Democrats are trying to make a lot of hay about this. But the truth is, the real radical right in America is very small. Mm -hmm. And the radical right who are willing to commit acts of violence in order to further a revolution soon is infinitesimally small. Yeah. Right. And if any of them have any brain cells to rub together at all, then they know that their friend who's always got the jackass ideas about something stupid they should do is a federal informant who's trying to entrap them and get them in trouble. So, you know, in the 1990s. And don't get me wrong. I mean, this could be very dangerous. The new law the Democrats are trying to pass is it doesn't really add any new crimes. I don't think the part I read just said they want to create new domestic terrorism divisions inside the FBI and Homeland Security. Well, mm. what are they going to do, right? If there's no domestic terrorism, they got to create some. Yeah. Without them, you know, why else do we need them? So they just have the perfect incentive. Even if they don't create some, they have the perfect incentive to let a few through in order to solidify their bureaucratic interest and, you know, for the future and all that. So, we see how they do with Muslims. Never mind the 1990s. Let's just stick to the Bush era and, and Obama era. We've had more than 350, maybe it was 500 something. Trevor Aronson's the expert on this. There's something like 350 outright entrapment job stings, right? Where some guy infiltrates some small group of Muslims who are almost always poor and desperate and uneducated kind of fatherless idiots, right? And then the informant says, don't you terribly and desperately need money to pay for your grandma's operation? And they go, yeah. And they go, and don't you hate American war crimes in the Middle East? And they go, yeah. And then they go, okay, say you love Osama into the microphone, dumb kid. And the kid goes, yeah, I love Osama. Okay, blam, life in prison, terrorist conspiracy, all of this stuff. 
You got to promise me $25,000 if I just say I love Osama. You know, it's all just an entrapment. They do this over and over and over again. So we'll see that, right, where they entrap some idiot into saying the wrong thing, and then they can pretend that there was a real plot there. But then we can also see real plots unfold. We saw um, in Obama years, we saw the FBI entrap a kid into attacking the Muslim, the Mohammed cartoon contest in Garland, Texas. I forgot what year this was. It's in the book. It's uh, 2014 or 15, I think. Um, and what happened was an FBI agent, not just an informant, you know, asset or something, but an actual FBI agent was the provocateur who recruited this kid and told him, tear up Texas, get it done. And the kid went to Texas and he showed up at Garland at the cartoon contest. He shows up and the cop that entrapped him is standing right there. But he's able to get off a shot and shoot an innocent security guard and wound him, luckily not kill him. And then mm -hmm. it was a local cop who pulled out his gun and killed the bad guy. While the FBI agent who got the local cop and the security guard and in fact the entire building full of civilians in there into this mess sat there like an idiot while all of this happened right in front of him. And of course, he just got promoted or something, I'm sure, right? He's on a permanent vacation, getting paid with your tax money right now, rather than rotting in the bottom of a prison somewhere for this. Um, but anyway, um, to go back to the 1990s and the war on the radical right then, especially after Waco and the huge boom in the militia movement, the FBI launched an operation called PATCON, which meant Patriot, ow, God dang, bit my cheek, uh, <laughs> called PACON, which meant Patriot Conspiracy is what that stood for. And, but the conspiracy wasn't the Patriots, the conspiracy was the FBI. And they went around infiltrating all these groups and trying to get them into trouble. And I'm telling you now, it's 99%. I'm not, um, I got a guy, there's a guy who's writing a book about this now that's gonna really put it to bed once and for all. We have the archive of primary sources Mm -hmm. at uh, the Libertarian Institute, but it's 99%. I mean, it's, this is the case. What happened was the PACCON operation resulted in the Oklahoma City bombing. It wasn't just that these guys did it. It was that the FBI created the kind of entire atmosphere in conjunction with this group of white supremacists to do this attack. And, you know, the Occam's razor explanation is that, well, they had a, essentially a bunch of informants and flip states witnesses who did this. And the FBI had to cover it up because they looked so bad that they should have had these men under control and under surveillance and they didn't. And it happened under their nose kind of thing. But the slightly more complicated and I think more realistic explanation is that their agent provocateur, Andre Carl Strassmeyer, who is a fake Nazi and not a real Nazi, that he was one of the primary forces in creating that plot and driving that plot forward to bomb that building. And that's why after it happened, they covered it all up and they let all of the guilty go free. And including the ridiculous hoax, especially look back at it now in hindsight, the hoax, oh yeah, no, there never was a John Doe too. Yeah, all of those witnesses who thought that McVeigh had accomplices, they were all just smoking PCP, I guess, and have no idea. Oh, what? Every single eyeball witness who can put McVeigh at the scene of the crime in downtown Oklahoma City that morning, 24 witnesses, 
can't ever be called to testify because every single one of them saw him in the company of others. Yeah, that's a really, really bad one, man. It's part of what made me such an anti-government, you know, kind of a guy in the first place because Waco was bad enough. But now you're telling me the revenge for Waco was essentially the same damn thing again? It was these same feds who, to one degree or another, Liam, were responsible for that attack. And Mm -hmm. it's just absolutely world record shattering cover up. It's just amazing. And and. So look, I mean, the FBI on their best day are a bunch of stupid meathead pigs. All they are. They are criminals. They only care about themselves. They don't care about anyone else. FBI job one is protect the FBI. Well, how do you think those towers got knocked down? It's because these guys are a bunch of worthless jerk offs. That's how. Right. How could there have been Al Qaeda, real ass Al Qaeda in the country for a year and a half, whether CIA told them everything they knew or not? How could the FBI not know that? It's because they're the scum of the earth. That's why it's because they're worth less. And so now put a bunch of guys like that in charge of preventing violence from white supremacists, Aryan nations and Klansmen and whoever. You think they're going to make matters better, not worse. Chances are, you know, very strongly the other way. And I think word to the wise on the militia movement, right? Your dumbest friend is not dumb. He's on the federal government's payroll and you need to get rid of him. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you've seen this and I don't know how like official it is, but people have, did you see that people were calling for like a 9-11 commission? Um, something along the lines. But basically, yeah. I don't really know much about the 9-11 commission. I, I read a little bit about it in your uh, Fool's errand, but can you just explain like how corrupt that was? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is a joke, right? A, the the people who were in charge of preventing the attack and failing to prevent the attack were the ones essentially in charge of writing it. You know, they got these former senators to sit at the, as the chairs of the committee, whatever. But the staff are, you know, all essentially came from the permanent state, whether they're, you know, Senate and congressional staff or whether they'd come directly from the executive branch. And mm-hmm. the project of the final writing of the commission report was overseen by Philip Zelikow, who was Connolly's Rice's right-hand man. Yeah. Well, she was the national security advisor. She was the one who told the head of the CIA and the head of the CIA's counterterrorism division, yeah, 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 we'll worry about that crap later. What's Al-Qaeda? I mean, I think I've heard of this Bin Laden guy before, but I don't know what Al-Qaeda is, and I don't care about that. You know, this idiot, it was her fault, and her right-hand man got to write the story about how, yeah, no, it's kind of nobody's fault. You know, these things happen. And geez, if only the FBI and CIA had worked a little bit better on coordinating. And I mean, there's a lot of truth to that, really. And I mean, I think I agree with that as the official explanation of what was really going on here was the CIA and the FBI absolutely hated each other. In fact, there's a clip I just, I found it the other day. You can find it online where Michael Scheuer, the head of the CIA's Bin Laden unit, is testifying before the Congress. And they ask him, the congressman asks him about John O'Neill, the head of the FBI's counterintelligence division in New York. And the congressman says, I believe you said that uh, John O'Neill was, you know, the greatest obstacle to fighting the war on terrorism, something, something. And Scheuer, and you can tell he's just absolutely seething with rage. And he's just, he's like a little bit flustered and nervous, but he's determined to say it. And if anybody knows Mike Scheuer, 
he's kind of a bad guy, but one thing about him is he is absolutely a straight shooter, man. And here's what he says. And he's just boiling. And he says, I also said, sir, that the only good thing that happened to America on 11 September was that building came down on John O'Neill's head. Because he did die there. He'd been fired from the FBI and went and became the head of security at the World Trade Center. Because he knew it was coming. And he died that day. And there's Michael Scheuer under oath before the U.S. Congress, the CIA, saying, finally, somebody killed O'Neill for me. Wow. And it was bin Laden who did it. High five for that one. John O'Neill, who was the FBI uh, chief of counterterrorism, you had this to say about him. Mr. O'Neill was interested only in furthering his career and disguising the rank and competence of senior FBI leaders. Yes, sir. I think I also said that the only thing, good thing that happened to America on 11 September was that the building fell on him, sir. Because that was the level of contempt and conflicting purpose between these guys. And, and it makes sense, too, right? The CIA's job is to find these guys and kill them, torture them, do something. Find them, get rid of them, disappear mm -hmm. them, send them to Egypt to be buried in a mass grave somewhere alive. Right. The FBI's job is to indict them and prosecute them in court in Virginia or New York City. And that means that every scrap of information that they get gets locked up behind a grand jury and the CIA can't have it. And so then the CIA says, well, that's fine. We're not going to let you have anything that we have either. Screw you. We hate you. And they just have totally different jobs. And meanwhile, books on the shelf back there. You got to read it. The Shadow Factory by James Bamford. NSA treats the FBI and the CIA the same way as they treat each other too. And NSA won't share their intercepts. They got all intercepts in the world of bin Laden and his men, both sides of the conversation, and they won't give it up to the CIA or the FBI. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these are the guys, basically imagine your junior high school gym coach in charge of national security, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, I guess he probably can remember the rules for handball, but what the hell does he know about global politics or what matters or what's more important than his own stupid job at his own stupid agency and the answer is nothing he knows nothing and so it's it shouldn't be a surprise at all you know as uh, one wise person i can't remember who said that you know people expected for america's air power to get right up there and defend the country from those planes our air powers patrolling the dmz over the koreas our air powers over there waging endless sorties against iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia provoking this attack. Mm -hmm. They're not ready to protect our East Coast. Their one job defending this nation, they had to launch Air National Guard. They launched Air Force F-16s with no missiles on their tips or bullets in their magazines. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah, I, I was curious if you, um, I know Ron Paul, he, he kind of like, we talked before about kind of like the the Nixon era, I believe it was the Nixon era, like approach to foreign policy, which was like kind of narrowly tailored. Um, and Ron Paul goes before Congress and basically says like, we should we should only target Osama. Would Do you support something along the, those lines? Like, would you have supported that as opposed yeah, so, to- Yeah, well, and I'm glad you brought that up. It's a really important point. So Ron Paul introduced what was called, what's called a letter of mark and reprisal which 
um, is in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11. The Congress has the power to declare war or issue letters of mark and reprisal and make rules concerning laws concerning warfare and on the high seas and all this. Um, the, the war power, it's in the same clause as the war power, okay? Mm -hmm. And what it is essentially is it's the power of Congress to declare war on groups less than states, groups of bandits, especially in traditionally pirates, right? And in other words, um, not just declare war on them, but also give them the right to pay bounties to any privateers who might capture or kill them. So mm -hmm. if you're a regular merchant ship and you bag a pirate or two, we'll pay you. And we're, we're essentially deputizing you and we're limiting your liability for any deaths of any pirates that you might commit, you know, any, any killings of any pirates because we're declaring that they no longer have the right to live. They're fair game. Go ahead and hunt them, right? So by introducing this in Congress, what Ron Paul was doing was saying, don't attack the Taliban. Don't attack Muslims. Don't get carried away with this. And I quote in, in the first book, In Fool's Air in there, I love the way he puts it. It's just perfect the way he puts it, that we have to protect this country, and we, but we have to do so in a way that doesn't reinforce the narrative that bin Laden is trying to sell, that our mm -hmm. purpose is to attack and hurt and destroy and humiliate Muslims. That would help him even as we kill him. It would help his goals. So what we have to do is even though we're angry, we have to be smart. We have to, the answer to, and listen, because this is the whole purpose of terrorism, Liam, is to provoke a reaction. So if somebody's trying to provoke a reaction out of you, you owe it to yourself to instead be smart instead of emotional, to think things through and do the right thing instead of letting somebody jerk your chain, right? <laughs> and that was what Ron Paul was saying. Everybody hold your horses. And now he did, I will say it was Barbara Lee he voted, who voted against the authorization to use military force. Ron Paul voted for it. And I asked him about it, um, in fact, probably too many times um, in different interviews over the years. And he's always said that, look, you know, this was the only one up for a vote. And it was somewhat narrowly tailored. I mean, the, the Cheney version was much broader. And the mm -hmm. Democrats succeeded in cutting out, you know, most of the worst language. And it really did say to target the guys that did the attack and anybody who harbored them. Does, it's not, doesn't say this is a blank check like the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Yeah. They just interpreted it that way anyway and said, oh, they just made up the term associated forces, which isn't even in there. And they just pretend that it is. And then now everybody's associated forces and whatever they want. Um, but, you know, as I tell the story in the book, and I think as Ron Paul has explained too, that he would have preferred diplomacy, right? He was just saying, you know, in the event that there's no peaceful way to solve this, then we should tailor the authority to attack the guilty as narrowly as possible to mm -hmm. avoid what obviously Bush and Cheney are trying to do, which is conflate the Taliban with Al-Qaeda, the government of Afghanistan with a guilty terrorist group so that they can do a regime change in Kabul and so that they can define the war on terrorism as broadly as possible and open to adding new states. Obviously, Iraq was their highest agenda to go along with it. And so that was, you know, if they'd done it Ron Paul's way, then it would have they would have avoided all of that regime change and the rest of that. Um, but 
I make the case in in both books, but in Fool's Errand with the details mm-hmm. that um, they deliberately let Bin Laden escape. I think it, it's you know perfectly clear that they had the opportunity to negotiate his extradition and all of his men with the Taliban. The Taliban said, look, just give us some evidence and we'll turn them over to you. It doesn't have to be an ironclad conviction case, but give us some reason to believe that he did it, okay? In other words, we're trying to save face here. We want rid of this guy. We don't want to get carpet bombed. We want to give him over to you. Give us a piece of paper with something on it, please. And Colin Powell said, we're working on a dossier right now. He went on Meet the Press and said that the Secretary of State, we're working on a dossier. As we just discussed, they knew there was an attack coming all summer long. It wasn't that there was any question that bin Laden and Zawahiri and their men were behind this thing, that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had made his alliance with bin Laden back in whatever it was, 1998 or whatever. Um, All this stuff. They knew all of this. And they could have done it. And the Taliban said, we'll give them to any Muslim country. Well, that could have been Jordan or Malaysia or Egypt or any absolute sock puppet dictate. Well, Malaysia is not a dictatorship, but um, any sock puppet dictatorship of America. I probably wouldn't turn him over to Saudi. He might disappear before you get your hands on him. But send him to Jordan. Send him to Kuwait. What are the Kuwaitis going to do? The Kuwaitis are going to let his plane land on the tarmac, and then they're going to give clearance for that plane to take right off again to head for North America. They wouldn't even extradite him, right? They drop the paperwork later. Americans, you can have him. Come on. This is a, a put on, right? It was a put on. The Americans were pretending, oh, the Taliban are being intransigent. Well, they're not being intransigent. They're saying, give us the slightest bit of face saving and we'll turn him over. The Americans said no. Bush said no negotiation. So they said, well, turn him over. We'll turn him over to the Pakistanis. Again, give us some proof and we'll turn him over to the Pakistanis who are working closely with you now. And of course, they'll turn him right over. Bush said, nope, absolutely not. No conditions, no negotiations. Forget about it. I mean, why should that be? No negotiations. Okay, I get it. We're really mad. Right. Mm -hmm. But you can get your hands on the guys. If you send Colin Powell the former four-star general, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's your secretary of state, pretty tough guy, right, to go and handle this. Seems like he can handle this. His deputy, Dick Armitage, had told the Pakistanis, you're going to do everything we say or we're going to reduce your country to the Stone Age. You understand? And you know what they said? We understand, sir. And they were absolutely in America's pocket. Look, the only reason they backed the Taliban is because America worked with Saudi to help them back the Taliban in the first place in the Bill Clinton years, right? There's no question that they were going to be cooperative, that they were already being cooperative with the Americans as of the evening of September 11th, mm-hmm. okay? No question about that. But nope, they ruined the deal. Then finally, at, on October the 8th, after the bombs started falling, admittedly, the Taliban said, okay, okay. We'll turn them over to any third country in the world, probably excluding Israel, although they didn't even say that. We'll turn them over to any third country in the world without any evidence if you just stop the bombing. And the Bush government said, nope, too little, too late. And then what they do? They took the entire war to the Taliban in the north of the country to Kunduz and to Kabul while bin Laden and his men were getting away. And they knew, and I show in the book, they knew that bin Laden and his men were at the lion's den, which they should have assumed from the very beginning, that of course they were at their lion's den hideout in Tora Bora in the Nangarhar province from the very beginning. That was where they were planning to make their stand. And that, but they're right by the Pakistani border there. And so they spent, you know, weeks. It was, they didn't really engage them until the second week of December, three weeks after they knew he was there. 
And then as I show in the book, it's in uh, Jawbreaker by Gary Bernson, the CIA officer who was on scene and uh, Kill Bin Laden by Dalton Fury, which is the alias of um, the commander of Delta Force on scene, Thomas Greer. They wanted and needed desperately needed Green Berets and Army Rangers as reinforcements to back them up. And they were just refused over and over and over again for weeks. They were refused. There were plenty of Rangers right there at the Bagram Air Base, a helicopter right away. The Green Berets were screwing around fighting for the communist butcher, war criminal General Dostum up there in the north at Mazari Sharif, where they had no business whatsoever. Again, they're and I remember the coverage at the time. Ooh, Mizari Sharif, we're fighting the Taliban. All this is going on. And look, there was a prison uprising. And our heroic CIA officer, Mike Spann, was killed and all these things. What the hell are they doing at Mizari Sharif? Bin Laden is in Nangahar province. Yeah. What are they doing fighting for the communist butcher war criminal General Dostum against the Taliban when that's not who attacked us? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, it's straight out of, you know, you read it in Bob Woodward's book, Bush at War, which is taken straight from the NSC documents, from the minutes of the meetings of Bush's National Security Council Principals Committee in the days and weeks after the attack. That's all primary source quotations of these men, particularly Donald Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz. Even Dick Cheney was like, guys, guys, we'll get to Iraq, but... We got to do Afghanistan first. Come on, you know, but Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz are like, listen, Rumsfeld, especially. Yay. We don't want to define this thing too narrowly. What if hypothetically, what if we got bin Laden? Would the American people think the war is over? We don't want the American people to think the war is over. Let's say it like this. Getting bin Laden is not success and failure to get bin Laden is not failure. And maybe we should start bombing Iraq right now so the American people don't get the idea that this is a limited excursion against the few guilty men who attacked us. We don't want them to be confused. We need to get other theaters of operation going now so that the story remains as broad as possible from the beginning. Meanwhile, bin Laden's getting away. Rumsfeld's the secretary of defense. And is he telling Tommy Franks, I want every man with a rifle you got at Tora Bora now to kill these men dead? No, he's refusing to allow the reinforcements to go. And then, and I got all their BS rationalizations after the fact. Well, we didn't want to stir up some Pakistani tribal men because that would have been bad. What would have been bad about that? Who gives a crap about that? You know, um, this is their excuse for not chasing them across the border into Pakistan, an allied country, right? This is like some criminals say the terrorists are in the United States and they're escaping from, you know, the 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 um, accessories to the September 11th attack are escaping from New York into Canada. And then the Americans go, oh, no, they made it to Canada. We can't even do anything. Yeah, right. We can't even call the Mounties and ask them to intercept the guys. Mm-hmm. We just, we're just, oh, we have to give up. Have to throw our hat and stomp on it and just pout because they got away. Like they jumped into hyperspace and there's nothing we can do to follow them. When it's just an imaginary line and a valley and a mountain and these are the Delta Force. You think they don't know how to hike a mountain and kill a man? That's their job. That's their only job. Mm-hmm. Dalton Fury talks about in the book, it's Thomas Greer. He also went on 60 Minutes and he explained they came up with all these different plans 
for going after them were denied every single time. They're the Americans. They got Chinooks. They said, here's what we'll do. Now that they've escaped to Pakistan, we'll fly over the mountain and then we'll come over the mountain this way and meet them from the east. We'll get them then. Nope. Denied. Wow. Okay, we'll fly, we'll fly helicopters in all the probable valleys. There's only three or four valleys they could possibly be traveling through, and we'll mine the hell out of them. And that'll slow them down, and we'll be able to track them. And Nope, denied. And, and Greer says, and I'm sorry I'm going on on this one point, but Greer says that in his experience as, I guess he was a lieutenant colonel, but he was the commander on the ground. He was like temporarily promoted to colonel while he's running the thing. And I'm pretty sure is the way it was. He said in his experience... This is Delta, okay? These are the top tier, equal to SEAL Team 6. This is the very top tier special operations forces, okay? When they ask permission to, here's what we want to do on a tactical level to achieve their mission, he said in his experience, they are never denied. Never. This is the Delta Force. If they say, sir, we need X, they get X. They're not screwing around. They're out there on the most serious mission of all. And he said he'd been doing this for years and years and years. He'd never heard of a time where Delta said, we want permission to do this or that. And they were told no. They wouldn't be asking for permission if it wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. And he just, as, as, as he puts it, and as CIA uh, commander Gary Bernson puts it, they both put it, we just couldn't understand why they wouldn't go along with our requests. Thousands of Rangers, thousands of Green Berets. You know, our, our recent um, very temporary Secretary of Defense, Christopher Miller, mm -hmm. under Trump after the election um, in, the, in the lame duck session there, he was a Green Beret fighting in the North in Afghanistan during that time. I saw a thing where he gave a speech. He talked about his captain, or his, um, sorry, his commander was Colonel Mulholland. Well, Colonel Mulholland is the guy who's repeatedly chastised and attacked in Thomas Greer's book, Kill Bin Laden, as the Green Beret commander who would not share his men. All we need is half of your guys, please. And the answer was no, 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 no. And it was because Donald Rumsfeld told me not to. And that, you know, Mulholland wasn't willing to say, fine, fuck it, throw me in jail. I'm going to help Greer kill Bin Laden. Right? Instead... He refused. And Christopher Miller was one of his guys up there screwing around fighting the Taliban while bin Laden was getting away. And it was when Christopher Miller got in that the deal to pull out troops out of Afghanistan kind of like happened, right? Down to 2005. No, no, no. No, no, no. The deal, the deal was signed last February the 29th on Leap Day, uh, 2020. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, Miller came in and the idea was that maybe as Secretary of Defense and the new guy— and a Trump guy that possibly he was going to force the issue and pull our troops out of Afghanistan now and not give Biden the opportunity to ruin the deal. The deal says we don't have to leave till May of this year. Right. Mm. So um, the idea was, well, uh, maybe they're going to go ahead and pull the troops out now. No. And then yeah. what did they do? He ordered troop levels reduced to twenty five hundred men in Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, that wasn't much of a reduction. It's essentially the status quo, not a, change, not a change in strategy or tactics, just a small fluctuation of troop numbers that could be, re, you know, uh, reversed and put right back where they were. Same thing in Somalia. They pulled the troops out of Somalia. They just moved them to Kenya and Djibouti. And then they just keep the war going anyway. 
So, yeah, so and in fact, escalated it. And Biden has escalated, not just Trump, but Biden has escalated the war in Somalia already. Yeah. And I want to tie it all in um, for the listener. So after all of this, uh, Bush then says that he will make no distinction between the terrorists and the countries that harbor them. And then in a later speech in Fool's Errand, especially, you mentioned that he basically says that these terrorists exist in like 60 different countries. Um, would you say that that in itself was like a declaration on like all of the all of the countries that you uh, list and enough already? Like, is that what set off the the potential for um, the United States to go to war in all of these countries? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I mean, I think certainly it had to do with his public case for the American people. But look, there are 60 countries out there where these terrorists, they're everywhere. We're just getting started and it'll never end. You know, here's a guy who couldn't give a damn about Al-Qaeda for his first eight months on the job. Yeah. Now they're under every rock. Anywhere there's a Sunni with a rifle, we're going to pretend that they all are answerable to Osama bin Laden. And then, some, and you know what, that might be in... 20 countries. We're just going to go ahead and triple that and call it 60 because we like jerking your chain is basically mm -hmm. all they were doing. You know, they never meant that. And there's, that just wasn't true that there are Al Qaeda guys in 60 countries. I mean, it's just made up nonsense. Um, the reality was that there were about 400 men in Afghanistan who were real Al Qaeda guys and another few hundred around the Middle East who were, you know, could said to be on their email list. And, you know, part of their discussion groups and former fighters, former, you know, uh, freedom fighters from the Reagan era and whatever spread throughout the Middle East. The mm -hmm. idea that this was some Leviathan that, you know, there because of the size of the attack and its equivalence to Pearl Harbor, that that meant there was some Islamic empire comparable to the Japanese empire out there. This just wasn't true. And Bush was happy to let people be that afraid. He was very happy to let people think if they lived in Dallas, Texas, that, oh, yeah, no, I mean, they're coming for you soon. And if it wasn't for me, you'd be dead already. And all of this kind of stuff. When no, man, this was a last gasp, Hail Mary pass, desperate attempt of a few marginalized, exiled, you know, veterans of an old war to try to reintroduce themselves into the narrative of of power and politics in the Middle East. And the fact that they had to steal our 757s to even have a weapon to use against us should have been a clue, right? These guys don't control a single county anywhere mm. in the world, right? It's 400 men. Bin Laden at that time was not trying to create a movement. He was trying to create a special operations team of guys who could accomplish, you know, a few guys who could accomplish big missions. And... You know, that was essentially what they did. It was George W. Bush who turned it into a movement, not bin Laden. Yeah. And and not not even by invading Afghanistan as bin Laden hoped, but by invading Iraq. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, just to finish up here, uh, you, you've referenced a little bit of what Biden's done already, um, including the Russian deal. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that? And then also just how he's escalated in different areas. I know uh, with Yemen, while he's been in office, um, Saudi Arabia has bombed them a few times. Yeah. I think 34 people have been killed. Um, so do you just want to talk about that? Sure. Well, on Russia, I mean, Biden is a horrible hawk. He was in on the coup in Ukraine in 2014. He just rehired Victoria Newland, who did that coup to help run the State Department's European affairs. I forget if they gave her the same job again. Under Obama, she was 
assistant secretary of state for European affairs, which is essentially mm -hmm. ambassador to the EU, I guess. Um, and they're giving her another, you know, like position. That's Robert Kagan's wife. She's incredibly dangerous. And um, so I'm, I, I think that there's a very good chance they're going to try to bring Ukraine into NATO. And if they do, they could cause a horrible war. I mean, talk about overreach, man. It's just, it ain't, it's so far outside of what is reasonable for yeah, them for to try to do that. For people don't, who don't understand NATO and like the implications, can you just explain sure. why that was bad? Yeah. So after World War II, the United Nations was founded, but then essentially it was split in half in the creation of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization for the U.S. and the Western powers. And then the Soviets created the Warsaw Pact, was their military alliance of the Soviet republics and the satellite states pardon me, that were conquered, you know, in during World War Two. Mm -hmm. And so this was what they called the bipolar world during the Cold War. The Reds really controlled Russia, China, North Korea, and the US controlled everything else. America inherited all of the world empires of Europe and of Japan, and became the dominant force in, you know, almost all of the rest of the world. Not in outright colonialism, but more like coup d'etats and political engineering, CIA manipulation and control of lily pad bases, as they call them, spread throughout the world. It's an empire of bases more than outright colonialism, but mm -hmm. you don't really need to move American companies and American citizens and American equipment into Congo or wherever it is. You just have to pay off the right people to get the right stuff. So it's a not even a neo-colonialism, but a neo-neo-colonialism under American so-called leadership, but, you know, mm -hmm. really military dominance. And so the idea of NATO was that this is how we keep the Reds out of Western Europe. This is how we keep the communists from conquering Western Germany, France, the Netherlands, and, you know, all of our friends in Western Europe. And it really wasn't necessary in the first place because the Soviets didn't have the power to invade Western Europe. And um, the, uh, you know, the West Germans and, and the French, they were able to defend themselves from a Russian land army attack relatively quickly. We didn't need to have our troops there. But the idea was, as they put it, keep the Yanks in, the Germans down, and the Russians out. And so how do we prevent Germany from being the dominant power in Europe? We're the dominant power in Europe including mm -hmm. our friends, the Germans. We treat them nice enough that they acquiesce to their role in our order, basically. And then the real problem with NATO, Liam, is that after the Soviet Union dissolved, America started gobbling up all those Eastern European states that used to be in the Warsaw Pact. They started bringing them into NATO. Well, it's not a social club. It's a military alliance. Says so that if you get attacked by whoever, the rest of us have to rally around and promise to defend you. And so it's a war guarantee, essentially. And H.W. Bush in 1988-89, he promised Mikhail Gorbachev, the last premier of the Soviet Union, that America will not extend the NATO alliance one inch east of Germany if they would agree to withdraw from Germany. And Helmut Kohl, the leader of West Germany, and Margaret Thatcher, the leader of Great Britain, and uh, I think it was Mitterrand, 
who was the president of France at the time, all agreed and all made the same promises. Same for James Baker III, who was America's secretary of state at the time. All swore to God they would never extend the NATO alliance east. Well, Bill Clinton got in there and that's what he started to do. And a lot of it was domestic politics, right? He needed Polish votes in Illinois. So he said, let's bring Poland into NATO, this kind of thing. And of course, Lockheed, uh, the Lockheed Vice President Bruce Jackson put on a full court press and a massive propaganda campaign mm-hmm. for NATO expansion so they could get rid of jet fighters at taxpayer U.S. taxpayer expense and give them to all these countries. But the thing is, they even brought in the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, right on Russia's border. And they threatened perennially to bring Ukraine into NATO. Well, this would be exactly analogous to the Russians bringing Canada into the Warsaw Pact. The reality is we saw what happened when they put their missiles in Cuba. Jack Kennedy said, I will start a thermonuclear war before I let you leave them there. Remove Mm -hmm. them now or it's on is what happened in 1963 with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay, Mm -hmm. so that's America's stance. You try to pull that stuff on us. You try to imagine Russia. Think of all the BS over, you know, emotional reaction over Russia not meddling in the election of 2016, but just a bunch of stupid lies by America's FBI and CIA and Democrats along those lines and Mm -hmm. media. Imagine if they really overthrew the government of Mexico or overthrew the government of Canada in order to put in loyal sock puppets who would then move those countries into Russia's military alliance against us. America would launch its H-bombs and kill us all before they let that happen. Jimmy Carter would have, you know? Ralph Nader would launch the nukes before he let the Russians overthrow the government of Canada and put in and use a bunch of neo-Nazis to do it. Don't you love that? Victoria Newland, Robert Kagan's wife, hiring a bunch of Nazis who are the proud descendants of the men who murdered the people that she's descended from in the Holocaust Mm -hmm. to overthrow the government in Kiev because, hey, business is business. If the Russians pull that in Canada, Washington, D.C. would launch every H-bomb we have until they were all dead. Simple as that. Simple as that. What's Putin done this whole time? Geez, our American partners sure are getting aggressive with their whole NATO expansion thing that I wish they'd back off on. Wow, what a cool customer. Can you imagine the trouble we'd be in if Vladimir Putin had emotions? Jesus Christ, thank God that he is the ice-cold, throat-slitting sociopath that he is, man, because what if you made him actually angry? He never refers to the USA as anything other than our partners. Oh, thank God this guy. Oh, man, it could be so much worse than him. But I'll tell you what, and this is, I have a little bit of hope here, Liam, because this is the new head of the CIA, William Burns. Burns met with Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, in 2000, and I'm going to say nine or 10. It's in the WikiLeaks. Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange, the great American heroes, even though Assange is Australian, uh, leaked this. And the document is titled yet means yet and this is from a discussion that burns had with um sergey lavrov where lavrov says listen i know you guys want to bring ukraine into nato but i just want you to understand i think you know we could be in kiev in two weeks we will not allow you to bring ukraine into nato 
Do I make myself clear? The line's been drawn. Don't you cross it. I'm not kidding. All right. Have a nice day. Okay. And then so Burns sent the memo back to D.C. and titled it. Yet means yet. Lavrov explained to me that, yeah, we better not. Okay, yeah. this is our new head of the CIA. Oh, thank God. Right? Like, first of all, he has some kind of relationship with Sergey Lavrov where they understand each other. I like that. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Uh, these are pretty desperate times, man. We'll have to settle for what we settle for. Uh, it could have been much worse. Could have been Mike Morell, who said what we need to be doing in Syria is killing Russians. That's the guy who almost got the job, okay? And instead, it was William Burns, the guy who said, yet means yet. There's mm -hmm. a line that these people won't let us cross. They let us get away with overthrowing the government in Kiev, but they won't let us get away with bringing them into NATO. Yeah. And so, um, and actually, as I say, though, that was from 2009 or 2010. And then Robert Kagan's wife, Victoria Nuland, and Joe Biden, the vice president, overthrew the government of Ukraine in 2014. So I'm not so sure how loud and clear they got that message. And that was clearly mm -hmm. a means toward bringing them into NATO eventually um, and, and, you know, causing a fight there to purge the pro-Russian leaning factions from power in the capital there. So um, we're just getting started. I mean, you asked me about the treaty. This is the single most important thing in the world is the New START treaty because all the other new treaties have expired and, and ceased to exist. OK, so this treaty that Obama had negotiated was the very last treaty that limited the number of strategic nuclear weapons on America and Russia's side. Long range, um, you know, land-based, uh, sub-based and air-launched uh, thermonucle thermonuclear weapons and limits them to, I guess, 7,000 each, 4,000 deployed, another 3,000 in reserves, something like that. Uh, pretty sure that's right, Some, somewhere right around there. Mm -hmm. and. You know, that whole story about how Obama promised this massive overhaul, trillions of dollars. They started out saying it was 1.3 and now it's already uh, 2.7 or whatever. It'll be 4 trillion by the time they're done. Trillions to completely overhaul America's entire nuclear weapons industry and entire nuclear weapons arsenal. We're going to take every nuke we got, dismantle it and then remantle it again and charge you $4 trillion for the fund. Um, when none of this is necessary whatsoever. But Obama had to make that compromise with the Republicans in the Senate to get the treaty passed. And I love this. And everybody should have thought of this, but it's not like you're going to watch this uh, episode of 2020 about it because they won't ever produce it. But there really is a thing in the U.S. Senate called the Nuclear Caucus. And what it is, is it's a group of senators who represent Western states that collect billions of dollars in welfare from the U.S. government for the care and feeding and creation and study and all the things of America's nuclear weapons industry. Mm -hmm. And just like any other interest group in America, like the AARP or the Israeli lobby or the tobacco lobby or the gun lobby or any other lobby, this is the nuclear weapons lobby. And their job is making sure that Uncle Sam always wants more H-bombs and never runs out and never satiates his appetite for what they've got to sell. He's their captive market. And these nukes, after all, are made by quasi-private companies who have this massive profit motive to continue the policy. And so, and then they lobby for the policy. Oh, it's a world 
full of dangers out there. It's unthinkable that you would stop buying H-bombs from us. Think of all the danger we'd be in if you did. So they have this huge role in deciding the policy and the shape of the narrative about the policy and everything else. And this is why Obama had to promise them $3 trillion in nuclear weapons warfare to uh, welfare to get them to support his treaty to limit the number of deployed nukes. Right. And then, so Trump let the God treaty expire. Oh, Mr. Let's get along with Russia. Let it expire. And, um, you know, Putin said, no, nah, let's get back in it. No conditions. Let's just get back in it. And Biden said, OK, let's do that. So at least we got that. And you can read the readout, you know, their summary of his call with Putin was the first thing they did was say, OK, let's get back in the new start treaty. OK, deal. OK, good. And then the rest of the time he attacks him with a bunch of false accusations, yep. hacking in our computers and meddling in our elections, putting bounties on our soldiers in Afghanistan. Charlie Savage's disgrace, CIA's lies in The New York Times from last summer and all of this and read in the riot act over a bunch of lies. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, who knows if Biden even has a clue of how dishonest all of this stuff is at this point. He read it and he read Charlie Savage in the Times and believed it like every other idiot who believed it, I guess. And, and at the time, you said that that was to justify staying in Afghanistan, right? Clearly it was. Yeah. They brought it up in November of 2019 in order to stop the deal from being signed then. And then two days before they were going to sign the deal last February. They brought it up again and tried to force the issue into Trump's daily brief and all of this in order to say, oh, Trump had a reason to scotch the deal, but he ignored it and did it anyway. And then luckily his staff kept it out of the PDB so he wouldn't have to go through that bullshit. They went ahead and signed the treaty anyway. And then in the summer, just two weeks or what, a week after Trump leaked. And why would he do this? He's so stupid. He puts out this trial balloon. Maybe I'll go ahead and pull the troops out now out of Afghanistan instead of waiting until next May. And then the next thing you know, what, two days or a week later, something like that, the story's running in the New York Times that, oh, yeah, the Russians are killing Americans, are paying the Taliban to kill Americans in Afghanistan. Story's a total hoax, and his editors ended up climbing down from the claims, even if he didn't. You know, he, they revised their story 10 times over, making it less and less and less damaging every time while never conceding that that's what they were doing. And too late. Too late. In fact, as I detail in the book, you'll get to this in the book, I go ahead and barbecue Charlie Savage over this, that Savage says... That his story, he never walked, he never walked back his story. He never climbed down from his story because his story is still correct. Not that the Russians killed Americans, paid to kill Americans in Afghanistan. He's not saying that. All he's saying is there's a CIA report that says that it might have happened. A CIA report that their own analysts only gave it medium confidence. And by the way, the military and the National Security Agency gave it no confidence whatsoever and refused to agree with it at all. And even the CIA themselves only gave it medium confidence, which means, eh, could have been, but I don't know, can't prove it, can't disprove it, but I heard it somewhere, means nothing. Means, geez, boss, we ought to keep this in mind for the future, maybe, right? And then, But Savage says, no, no, no. See, all I did was report the fact that there is a rumor. And that is a solid fact. 
And so the so it ran the, the top of the fold, the front page of the most important newspaper in America, Russians paying Taliban to bounties to kill Americans. And doesn't matter that every Democrat believed it, that everyone on TV repeated it as though it's true, as though the Times had confirmed that this had happened at all. Nope. And he takes no responsibility for anyone else's misinterpretation either. His story is absolutely sound. He can report the fact to you. There's a rumor going around. You know, did you hear? I mean, I don't know that Jimmy and Sally are, you know, cheating on, uh, you know, Susie and Billy. But I can report to you the fact that I heard that somewhere. Now you go ahead and tell everybody else. No, that's not gossip. That's solid reporting. Get it? Yeah. Well, so just just before we let you go, because time is running out, do you want to um, just kind of maybe recap what's going on with Yemen? And then yeah. We can well, I mean, so the deal is America's been fighting a war of genocide and treason on the side of Al Qaeda, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates for the last six years there. It started out as a war against Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And then at uh, the beginning of 2015, Obama turned the war right around and took Al-Qaeda's side. And not only that, but it's a war that is deliberately targeting the civilian infrastructure of the entire country. The water, the sewage, the electricity, um, you know, um, the hospitals, the farms, and in particular on the farms, they bomb the grain silos, the the flocks of sheep in the field, the irrigation ditches, everything they can to make them absolutely inoperable. They bomb the trucks, they bomb any business of any real economic value in the north of the country has been decimated. The potato chip factory, every car dealership, every, you know, whatever you got that is, you know, helping to sustain the lives of the people of that country is being systematically destroyed, has been for the last six years. Barack Obama started it. Donald Trump has continued it the whole time. America is absolutely as guilty as hell. They try to pretend that this is the Saudi-led coalition, but America is the world empire, and Saudi Arabia is our client state. They came to Barack Obama for permission in the first place. He gave it to them, and he gave them military, he gave them CIA, and he gave them all the mercenaries that they need to take care of all their targeting, all their logistics, and all of the maintenance and care and feeding of their planes, and, of course, selling them approximately three to five billion dollars worth of bombs every year to drop on these helpless civilians in this country that never attacked us. The only guilty men in Al-Qaeda in in Yemen who attacked the United States were Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, who bombed the coal, who helped coordinate the September 11th attack, who tried to blow up the plane over Detroit on Christmas Day 2009, who did the Charlie Hebdo attack and one or two of the other attacks in France. They're the ones we're fighting for, Liam. They're the ones this war is for against their enemies, the Houthis, who never did anything to us whatsoever. And it's absolutely sick. And if people, I'll beg your audience, go and look, you know, make sure there's no kiddos in the room and go and type in Yemen child into Google images and just go and look and click through and see where those images come from, who those photojournalists are, who's telling you that story and what story they're telling and go and bear witness to the results of an American genocide against this helpless country, the poorest, weakest country in the Middle East that never threatened us in any way whatsoever. Yeah, 
Well, thank you so much um, for joining me again. We had to redo last week's mistake because uh, I guess both of our recordings got corrupted or something like that. But um, yeah, if you want to just like tell people where they can find your book, um, where they can find you, and we can let you go. Sure. Okay, so I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute. I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com. And I'm the host of the Scott Horton Show. I got 5,400 interviews going back to 2003 for you at scotthorton.org. And the books are Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, The Great Ron Paul, The Ron Paul Interviews, uh, Scott Horton Show Interviews from 2004 to 2019, the transcripts of all my talks with him. And then the brand new one is Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, which is a short take on every war since 1979. I really hope you like it. And that's at enoughalreadybook.net. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Thank you, Liam. Appreciate it, buddy. It's the weekend and we can let go.